In the name of God, our Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. Amen. There is something in every human being, claimed the mystical theologian Howard Thurman. There is something that every human being is waiting, waiting, and waiting to hear. And when we hear it, he declared, the best kinds of things can happen between human beings. Even godly things can happen. But until we hear it, he maintained, we are testing ourselves and checking out others to see if it's there. Waiting, 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 he said, and testing, checking, seeking, and claimed, claiming the possibility to find out if it's there. That one true thing, he declared, is the sound of the genuine. That's right, he called it the sound of the genuine. And, uh, and this is how he concluded. When these two sounds come together, the sound of the genuine in ourselves and the sound of the genuine in others, this is the music that God heard when God said, let us make humanity in our image. That declaration makes Thurman one of my favorite humanistic theologians. For me, one of the best of those who combine being both a humanist and a theologian. We're all on a quest, he maintained, a quest to belong to humanity on the one hand and to connect with one another as God intended in our creation. And today, on this Sunday after Pentecost and after Trinity Sunday last week, today, with our gospel reading appointed for this second Sunday after Pentecost, today, we get a reading that highlights this quest in a particular way. I think it's a way that is keenly compelling and appropriate for our time, for this time in our lives as a people and as a nation, and indeed as a global community. Let me tell you what I hear the Spirit saying to the churches today. Our portion of Mark's gospel assigned for today begins at verse 20, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. But in verse 19 of chapter 3, just before our reading begins, we get a bigger picture, the context of it all. Verse 19 reads, Then Jesus went home. Once we get that context, some interesting implications appear. Jesus had come to his hometown to minister to people with his particular mission, as Mark describes that mission. In the preceding verses, Mark tells us that Jesus had appointed 12 disciples to be with him, to proclaim his message, and to have authority to cast out demons. Just those three things be with him, proclaim his message, and have authority to cast out demons. That exorcism feature of our Lord's ministry is highly profiled in this early chapter of Mark, chapter 3. And then, after having appointed the twelve, commissioned them in the way described, Jesus comes to his hometown, and what happens next? What happens is what Thurman said we people do. We test for the genuine. We're on a quest to hear the sound of the genuine in ourselves and to hear the sound of the genuine in others. Testing, checking, probing to find out, are we for real? What's really in us? 
Do we have what it takes? Are we the real thing? Or rather, is something counterfeit going on, something unreliable and suspect? Do we need to be concerned, or can we trust what is happening in this situation? We first see this line of inquiry occur when the crowds who were following Jesus so intensely, the scripture tells us, that he and his disciples could not even eat. People are flocking to him because he appears to be genuine, someone who can really set people free from demonic possession. The next occasion for this question arises with Jesus' own family, who set out to restrain him, the reading says, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. Is he in his right mind? The family wonders. And so they go out to find him and check if he's genuine or deranged. Then a third character, a third category of characters arrive on the scene to probe the question. Some scribes come from Jerusalem to challenge Jesus about his exorcisms. He's demon himself, he's demon possessed himself, they charge, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. That prompts Jesus to defend his exorcisms as godly and not demonic, as genuine and not counterfeit, as the real thing and not a trick or deception. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus retorts. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And then he concludes, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Thus he represents himself as a genuine rescuer who can bind your strong antagonist and even plunder his property on your behalf or in a righteous cause. Now it's at this point in the story that Jesus turns the tables on his interrogators, interrogators, and even on us as the gospel begins to imply how we too are implicated by this story. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Right here, we're invited to imagine what it may have been like for Jesus, hearing the sound of the genuine in himself as he was diligently setting people free, free through the power of the Holy Spirit. What it was like, we get to imagine what it was like for him to know that this was going on in himself, knowing his own authenticity, seeing how people are truly being healed and restored, and then to hear the voice of his detractors. That voice slandering the very spirit that empowers him by calling that spirit demonic. What we need in order to credit the ferocious terms that Jesus uses is to ima- in a response is to imagine what it felt like for him to be so intimate with the Holy Spirit and then hear that spirit called unclean the ruler of demons, something that's driven him out of his mind. In this passage, Jesus invokes what has come to be called the unforgivable sin, 
but I ask us to reframe it as the most unacceptable ingratitude. We are more likely to register its impact on Jesus when he calls it an eternal sin. And with this word eternal, it's as if he's hearkening back to the beginning of time and creation and invoking the opening verses of the book of Genesis, where the Spirit is giving birth to all things, including us. And then to hear that most awesome, loving, and life-giving Spirit maligned as demonic and unclean? Wow. That's like someone heaping abuse on the person who gave them birth and nurture. Truly, Jesus responds, people will be given for all manner of things they do and foul things they say, but this one is over the line. Now I think what's really at stake in this passage is not what might or might not be considered unforgivable. Rather, what's more critical for us to explore is the question, is there something inside us or available to us that is so key or crucial to who we are that to dishonor that thing is to risk losing oneself for eternity? Now, today's gospel doesn't fixate or get mired on questions like that. Rather, there's something more important that it's eager for us to hear today. And given the state of affairs in our country and around the world, it's more needful that we resume the story of Jesus' family waiting outside to carry him away. Finally, the scripture says, when his mothers and brothers arrived, they sent him a message through the crowd sitting around him saying, your mother and your brother brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now with that claim, Jesus had turned the tables on all his detractors Indeed, it's a claim that goes beyond them and beyond his own family to include all of us who seek the sound of the genuine in ourselves and in others. Here I want to restate that claim first in humanist terms and then return to the sacred theological terms that Jesus announced. Humanistically speaking, with whom are you most intimate so that you can trust that they will join with you in your most fulfilling missions and projects? Who are the most reliable people in your life that you can expect them to be genuine as a family in helping you do the things that most matter to you? Who are the people who are sure to be family with you in the most life-giving, affirming, and rewarding ventures of your life? And now in theological terms, Who do you find doing the will of God in the world in ways that are so life-giving and nurturing that you can see genuine outcomes that are holy and righteous from your perspective? With whom can you find such nurture and care that you would entrust them to be beloved community with you and for you as you go about in the world? Who would qualify as holy family members with you, as a mother and father, sister and brother, in your own ventures to bring about God's peaceable kingdom?
the divine milieu or the righteous reign as you see yourself called to achieve righteousness in the world. Here it might be helpful to conclude with a contemporary story of someone seeking the reign of God in our current day context. It came to me last month by way of Facebook. Now I know a providential act of God when I see one. If ever there was a time to pay attention to a Facebook story, this was it. Ha! Here's what I read from one of my Facebook friends who posted with heartfelt pathos. She gave a painful description of being rejected by her family for being too vocal and visible as a social justice activist. One of her family members declared that my friend had betrayed her own parents by her political commitments and public protests. My friend wrote that I was standing up for what God promises can be the right outcome for our country, but my family was demanding that I back down and apologize. She concluded with a cry of the heart, vowing to continue to witness for righteousness as she understood righteousness, regardless of losing the love of her family. Now, as it happens, my friend and I have in common another Facebook friend who is also a clergy person, and he replied to her post remarkably by quoting today's gospel verses about Jesus' family seeking to restrain him. If it helps any, he began, Jesus had the same problem. As painful as it might be, he continued, Jesus realized that his followers would have to find a new community among themselves greater than family. And then he concluded his comment by offering our common friend this personal benediction. He wrote, May you find comfort on the road with those of us who admire you for following your good and necessary work in the world. What a blessing. With that blessing, my clergy friend showed up as a brother to our sister as she shared her her suffering and her estrangement from her natural family. And so I now turn to all of us, asking, are we finding that new community that Jesus calls us to cultivate as a greater family alongside our natural families, as he calls us to cultivate a spiritual family of mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, cousins and adoptees? Now, at the risk of offering more than one sermon here today, I can't restrain myself from including the observance that many other Christians around the world are honoring today, Corpus Christi, meaning body of Christ in Latin, or the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ, as our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers call it. So this is Corpus Christi Sunday. However, for them, however, or universally, if you will, and historically, However, our Episcopal and other Protestant church readings today observe the second Sunday after Pentecost, which we celebrated two weeks ago, of course, Pentecost. And what I like about the difference between these two is the way that they resonate with one another nonetheless. Yes, there's a kind of convergence. As a sometime Anglo-Catholic myself, I appreciate that Mark's gospel at the end of chapter 3 gives us a kind of echo of the sacramental body and blood of Christ by invoking the image of people doing the will of God as Christ's corporate body or family. That's right. 
I'm not the only one who has observed how the Apostle Paul links the sacramental or Eucharistic body and blood of Christ as we receive it at the holy altar with the metaphor of our ecclesial or corporate identity as the body of Christ. One commentator goes so far as to call this connection Paul's tricky use of body in the Lord's Supper, where he talks about eating and drinking the sacrament worthily by discerning the body of Christ, ourselves, our fellow church members. One commentator goes so far as to call this connection Eucharistic, Eucharistic ecstasy, as we look out on the corporate body and we receive this sacramental body and we become, in the words of of an English evangelical, if you prefer, the broken body and poured out wine for the life of the world ourselves. We become that sacramental body corporately and individually. So, whether you choose to be an Anglo-Catholic evangelical, or to hearken back to uh, Howard Thurman as our African-American mystical humanist theologian, and be like me, Afro-Saxon, combining them all together, you will find a way to acknowledge your own call to be the genuine. Hear the sound of the genuine in yourself and in others, including our church, as we are called corporately to do the will of God, to be the people of God, the body of Christ, living and life-giving in the world today. And now, glory to God, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.